This is Wayne Jurnell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. So Dan, I'm starting to get my kids into soccer. I'm very excited. And it actually made me think a lot about like about sports. And I know that you're really into sports. Obviously, we have to reorganize our schedule sometimes around Oklahoma basketball. Yeah, uh, I'm a th- hardcore Thunder fan. I guess I put the fanatic right in in fan. Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a big sports fan, and I always have been. So, so this is a question for you. What would you say that like kids, or what would you say that people get out of sports? You know, it, it's so interesting because I have just been so interested in sports my whole life, right? Like as a little kid, I would wake up, the first thing I'd do is turn to the sports page, read everything. Like I actually think like any math skills I have, which I think everyone knows at this point aren't great. Um, any math skills I have are like probably from like trying to figure out what like ERA meant when I was looking at the like box scores and the stats of who which pitcher had the best ERA and stuff. And and so I just was always fascinated, which is very strange because like my parents didn't care about like mainstream sports at all. Like my dad was really into triathlons and running and cycling. And mm-hmm. so it was just something I was interested in. But, you know, I think there's something really alluring about first playing sports, right? Like just being on a team with other people under the direction of, you know, uh, a coach who can kind of help give the team form and learn lessons and be with others. And then watching it, it's just, it's a live event. There's something about like just being able, it's like a thing that brings people together, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of, and, and and it also for me is a great thing to like stop me from working all the time, right? It puts me good limits because I love it. It gives you a break every now and then, particularly, it, was it Thursday nights that we had to... So, yes, sometimes. Well, the Thunder used to play on Thursday nights, but the good teams play then. So we're not good anymore. So, yeah, we play on other nights now. But, you know, so I I just, yeah, I've always been interested. And I wanted to be a coach. That was my original plan. I was going to be a high school. Yeah, I was going to be a high school social studies teacher and coach. And, you know, against the stereotype, the first job I applied, I was offered, um, they needed somebody to come in and teach their AP classes. And so... You know, the, I actually later got a call like a week later from the job I wanted where I would have been a coach. So it totally sent me down a different path because I wasn't coaching. I just decided to keep going to graduate school and that that kind of led to a different life. So it's it's interesting to think Coach Dan would have been a would have been a whole different person. If the phone call, the other phone call came a week earlier, things mm-hmm. might have been uh, a lot different. Maybe so. Maybe. So. Do you like sports at all, Michael? Sure. Sure. We did actually just take the kids to uh, a Woo Sox game. And that was very exciting for us all. Great. Well, I think, you know, coaches, understanding the role of coaches is always an interesting thing, you know, because in, in, it's different in different countries, right? In the United States, coaching is often associated with teaching, right? But in some other countries, it's not, right? Like it's actually comes out of club sports. And so you have club sports and the coaches are there, but they're not actually teachers. And oh. so that line between coaching and teaching is a really interesting one. And I think we haven't really explored that much on this podcast. Not really. Hopefully today we're going to rectify that. Seems like a good time to do so since we're already into the discussion, right? (laughs) Who do you have on for us today, Dan? So we are really excited today to welcome into the podcast, Daniel Thomas. 
Welcome. Hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks for having me here. I appreciate it's it. Great to have you here. Dale, do you mind telling us a little bit about who you are? Who is Daniel Thomas? Yeah, so I, I'll talk a little bit about myself kind of in the context and relationship to this project. I was an undergraduate. I was a, a former student athlete at University of Maryland. I, I played cornerback there. And I have always had a love of history. So, you know, one of my earliest memories of a family vacation is, is going to Williamsburg, Virginia. And we went to the Jamestown Settlement. We went to the Yorktown Victory Center. We saw former plantation homes. We saw where enslaved people lived. And that was sort of my, my introduction to history and historical narratives and how narratives get constructed for me. So I've always had this love of history. So as a student athlete, I, I majored in history. I concentrated in African-American uh, 18th century history there. So I've always had this love of sports and, and history, right? And so those dovetail together perfectly for me to become a, a social studies teacher. So once I finished undergrad and, and playing at the University of Maryland, I went on to do my master's at, at Johns Hopkins. And that's really where I started to flourish in the field. So I, I had a mutual friend from Maryland who connected me to a phenomenal network of men who became some of my most trusted stewards in this field. And we essentially met and, and developed this nonprofit organization called Next Level Nation that had a huge impact in the community. We were working predominantly in, in Baltimore, Maryland, but our, our reach got out to the Washington, D.C. metro area, the Annapolis area of Maryland as well. And so we were hosting camps and clinics and events, workshops that brought hundreds of people out. We did college tours. We did Ivy League college tours, Big Ten, Pac-12, SEC, um, really trying to expose students to the next transition after high school. And most of the schools that we were working in, that a lot of those men that were teachers and coaches were in this, this network of Catholic schools in that area, right? If, if you've ever been in the DMV area, you know that, that Catholic schools are huge, not just for academics, but, but athletics. You know, if I said DeMatha High School right now, you know, listeners are going to know, oh man, that's a powerhouse, you know, football, basketball program, Good Counsel, Gonzaga, Calvert Hall, Gilman, right? So it has a lot of influence in the area. So the network of men I was working with were all tied to that. And so that's kind of how I got involved in that space. And a lot of that early, those early experiences gave rise to, to this project. Daniel, can you tell us more about your experiences as a high school teacher and coach? Yeah. So I taught AP government. I taught world history and practical law and, and social issues were the elective classes that I got to teach. And then uh, in addition to my, my teaching duties, I was also a varsity football coach. So I, I coached the defensive backs in that regard. And, you know, at the same time was kind of juggling roles also with the nonprofit community-based work. And I, I just, I absolutely loved it. I mean, you pour a lot into it. And, you know, the thing now in hindsight, you know, that it's, it's years after. And, you know, I still, I get calls from young men that I coached, you know, who just want to, to catch up and, and chat and see how things are going. You know, there's students that I work with who are married now. So, you know, I really love still hearing from them now. So it was absolutely a labor of, a labor of love, right? And I think one of the biggest things for me was seeing 
seeing them flourish in college, right? Whether they play sports or not, a lot of them have just gone on to do fantastic, phenomenal things. Several have gone on to be teachers and coaches themselves, you know, and they talk about the impact that myself and some of the other coaches had. You know, some are playing in the NFL. You know, one guy, we were coaching in, in the D.C. area, and now he's playing for the Washington Commanders. I mean, it's just, it just oh, wow. runs the gamut, right? So you just love seeing the growth of all those things. So it, it, was, it was a joy. I, I absolutely loved every minute of it. I'd love to know, like, so we talked about that line between coaching and teaching, right? Like it's a blurry line, right? They're, they're similar, but they're also very different. How, how did you see the two as like, how did you see coaching as teaching? And maybe sometimes teaching is kind of coaching, right? How do you think of those things? They were always the same for me. They were always the same. I, I never separated the two. And a lot of it goes back to, to my high school experience. You know, I, I was just really fortunate throughout my life to have fantastic men in the realm of both sports and education, you know, who were, who existed in both worlds. You know, I, I think about one of my, my high school coaches, Dimitri Cornegay, who was, you know, he was a Q, he was a member of Omega Psi Phi fraternity, deeply civic engaged man, a scholar, you know, he, he has his, he has his doctorate. He's a poet, phenomenal orator. I mean, he would give these beautiful impassioned speeches before a game you know as, as we're walking out I remember walking out before games and we were reciting his lines from his poems right walking out to a game another one of my coaches was John England you know who uh, unfortunately he, he passed away during when COVID first started but John England he he was a white guy he was a coach but he was also a professor of African-American studies at the University of Maryland right so for me, the two have never not coexisted. You could always be deeply multifaceted. You could be a scholar. You could be a poet. You could be a civic engaged person. And you could also be a lover of athletics and be a coach. So the two have always been married for me. They've never been separate. Well, so let's get into your uh, article you're here to discuss today. So um, you were published in Theory and Research and Social Education, which is no easy task to be published there. So congratulations. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. It's not an easy task at, at all. Not an easy task at all. <laughs> I definitely appreciate the uh, reviewers, though. Out of a lot of journals, they give fantastic, high quality feedback. Absolutely. Yeah, we we I've I've been through the process too myself and uh, and I I can't thank enough. We should give a shout out to Wayne Journal for overseeing that and and helping to get the reviewers' comments. I've always found both the reviewers and the editor of TRSC have been so helpful, and you get substantive feedback that really improves your manuscript and makes it better. And that Absolutely. that was my experience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So shout out to Wayne Journal, fantastic editor, does a great job managing it. Yeah. And so the article is titled, If I Can Help Somebody, The Civic-Oriented Thought and Practices of Black Male Teacher Coaches. So can you tell us about the article and project? So the first part of the title, If I Can Help Somebody, is a line by, you know, Mahalia Jackson's song, If I Can Help Somebody. And, you know, for people who don't know, Mahalia Jackson is, is kind of, if you're not kind of grew up in the Black church, she's kind of known for being the figure who was behind Martin Luther King, you know, when he's giving his his iconic, uh, I have a dream speech. And she's the one who's kind of yells to Martin, like, you know, hey, tell him about the dream, right? So she's kind of this voice that's, that's kind of give shaping and giving perspective to this, this transition 
and this purposeful transition that he's about to make at this iconic moment. So it was, it was very fitting that in this piece, several of the participants referred to songs by Mahalia Jackson that shaped how they made sense of their purposes for being teacher coaches. So I, I, in this piece, I was just really interested in, you know, how were these men conceptualizing, making sense of their purposes in one regard? And then in the other sense, how are they enacting that, right? So those were kind of the, the two prongs that, that I was interested in this, right? What's influencing how they conceptualize the city purposes for their work? And then how are they putting that into action? So yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the, the participants and, and yeah, how, how did they do it? What were your, your findings in the study? Yeah, so uh, several of the participants worked, you know, like my own background, they worked at predominantly white and private Catholic schools. And one of the participants worked in a Title I school in the Southwest that was predominantly Latinx. So I was really interested in looking at Black men in spaces that people typically don't look for them at, right? But they're always there. And I think that's particularly salient at this moment in time. You know, Michael Dawson is a political, political philosopher, and he talks about these Black counterpublics and how they kind of went away in the post-civil rights era. And he's saying that they're, they're resurfacing in the micro context, right? In these small ways, they're resurfacing. And in this particular instance, they're resurfacing with these Black male teachers in these particular spaces. So, you know, for how that showed up, one of the ones that I love the most that really just stuck with me, right? Because in the, again, in the sense of they're not just existing in these non-traditional spaces, but they're also existing in ways that are not traditional to how people typically think about Black men, especially Black male teachers, right? So the, the most salient theme to me that sticks out is how these men care, right? And how they enact forms of caring in non-traditional spaces. And the one that always tugs at, at my heart in this project was I, a participant who always said to his players at, at the end of meetings or weightlifting sessions or at the end of a, a Friday night game, he would always say, you know, take care of yourselves, take care of each other. And I just kept hearing him say that over and over, take care of yourselves, take care of each other. So I, I had to ask, you know, in the follow-up, like, you know, hey, can you tell me a little bit, you know, contextualize where this phrase came from, right? So again, black male coach, uh, you know, working at predominantly white Catholic school. And when he tells this story about how he was so close to these, these two white players, he was so close to them that they were groomsmen in, in his wedding, right? And, you know, so one of them ended up being shot by the police, you know, in front of his mother on Mother's Day. And another one had an, just, you know, an accidental drowning, right? And he talks about how he almost just quit the profession after that, right? He kind of just was like, I, I was going to leave after that, that particular moment. And he talks about how the players just rally around him. And just one of the things that really drives him to this day is to instill in his, his students this fierce commitment of collective fellowship right? To take care of themselves first and then to take care of each other, right? And he talks about that in relation to those two moments of how two students left that team environment on a particular day 
right? And then he never saw them again. And those students never saw him again, right? So he also talks about how those players rallied around him and refused to let him leave either the classroom or the field, right? So this, this notion of caring is, is very reciprocal, right? These men are caring for these young boys and then in turn, these boys are caring for, for these young men. So, um, so when I think about one of the, the civic practices that they're putting into play is this, this, this blending between collective fellowship and, and deep, uh, deep caring for one another, that's reciprocal. I really like that on, you know, multiple levels The you know, what's more important, right, than, than taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other. And I think a lot of times when we think of coaches and we think of teachers, we do think about how they are supposed to be leaders and care for others. But I like that idea of that reciprocal nature, too, because coaches and teachers need care, too. They, you know what I mean? They need support. And sometimes we don't do a good job of talking about that in the field. And we have burnout. We have, you know, teachers, coaches, people who are going through depression, who are, who are struggling with things. And I think forming those communities, that's really valuable. What are, what are some of the, the, the other findings you took out of this, out of the study? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, you know, another one is the deeper into the, the collective fellowship, right? I think most people have, have seen Denzel Washington's movie, Remember the Titans, deeply problematic in some ways, the way they construct that narrative. <laughs> they left a lot of things out. But one of the key scenes, right, in that movie that everybody kind of remembers is when he takes the, takes the young men up to uh, Gettysburg College, right, uh, over the summer. And that's kind of this coming together moment. And so I remember doing that myself, you know, that, that is kind of a, a key component there. But when you see the, the intentionality, I mean, the deep, deep planning that these coaches are putting into these moments in ways that is intentionally counter-hegemonic, that is intentionally anti-racist. Uh, you know, there was a participant who talks about how they have a session Every year that he closes out that summer camp with a session that he called, it takes a lifetime to build one in a moment to lose it. And there's a series of, of workshops that he does there. But he, I mean, he does things where he talks about the etymology of uh, the N-word and, and how it comes up in hip hop and popular culture and, and how it, 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 students are using it in, in the classroom. And he ties in you know, he ties in the work of, you know, Malcolm X's text to, to teach these things. So, so that's, that's another one. Something else that I think is important to bring up is also the theme of pervasiveness of anti-Blackness within the realm of sport, right? This is another one that really stood out to me because I think people often think, think of Black student athletes coming to these kind of elite private Catholic schools, and, and I've, I've written on this before, and thinking that it's just this really glorified, you know, experience, or that the athletic space in and of itself is a place where there's just all-out acceptance, right? There's, it's colorblind on the athletic field, right? You hear that a lot. And, you know, these, these uh, participants are sharing these really heartfelt scenes of experiences that either they themselves went through or their students, right? So, you know, in particular, there's a moment where a participant's at a, a track invitational meet on the West Coast, and he, he's sharing how he, if you've ever been to a track meet, you know, it's like an all day thing. And so he's talking about how he let some of the players go back into the hotel room, right? And when he comes back, 
you know, he sees them face down, handcuffed with, you know, I mean, it's just a massive police car presence there. And it's all these black boys handcuffed face down on the ground. And he's asking, you know, like, hey, what, what is going on? And, you know, they were playing video games in the hotel room. And someone called the police presence because, you know, in their mind, they, they weren't supposed to be there. Right. I mean, he shares another instance of how they are playing at a uh, they're playing at a basketball championship game still still on the West Coast. And they're playing in a predominantly white school. And the, the parents are, you know, hurling racial slurs at them throughout the game, calling them coons, calling them the N word. And it, it was just uh, pervasive. And I mean, he goes on to talk about how they, they still dominated the game, but that is very much a, a, a place where anti-Blackness resurfaces, right? And, you know, when I make that connection to myself, you know, I, I talk about this in my positionality statement, you know, the playoff game that I had where, you know, I grew up in Prince George's County, Maryland, it's predominantly Black and, and middle class, and you don't really play a team that is not all Black until you get to the playoffs, Right. You get to see, you know, because of redistricting and redlining, right? All these things we know. So we're playing this team that is predominantly white and they pull up to our school with a, a four car escort by the sheriff. And, you know, I talk about this in the paper and then the sheriffs get out and they position themselves at all four corners of our football field with their like assault rifles out, you know? And I say in the paper, it, it, it felt like, you know, police officers, you know, watching or monitoring uh, convicts on the yard in a prison, you know? And, and so it's just, uh, it's just very interesting that the salience of race and anti-Blackness is still relevant in these athletic spaces. Student athletes and, and coaches are, are encountering that. So how do coaches, like, so when that happens, like, what do coaches do? Like, what conversations do they have? Because that's the pretty graphic scenes that you're depicting. Yeah, it's the conversation, right? I think for a lot of Black Americans, the talk, right? We've heard that before, right? The talk. But it's always happening in the micro context in these very intricate ways, right? So I, I don't particularly talk about it in this piece, but in another piece, I focus on their pedagogical practices, right? Their curricular decision-making. So in response to that question, you just asked me, they are going through this process, and I kind of use this framework in, in this paper with, with George Yancey, seeing through the Black Omegle, right? These men have a deep understanding of how Blackness, in particular Black maleness, is constructed and exists in the imagination. So they are using, they are using history. They are creating, they're forming their own Black choirs in these Catholic schools. They are creating, like one participant created African-American studies class. He's currently at Howard University right now participating in the AP African-American history course. He's bringing that to the school. He got funding to take his students to go on the uh, sojourn to the South and they got to meet Congressman John Lewis, right? So they're taking students in this process of deconstructing and reconstructing how they understand race and Blackness within their classrooms, right? So that's really how they're doing it. And again, I don't talk about in this piece per se, but, but in another piece that's coming out soon, uh, there's a lot of curricular work that's, that's at play. You know, as I said, one participant created 
his own black student union, right? So he's kind of creating, like I said earlier, Michael Dawson, he's creating these black counter public spaces to deeply reconceptualize and see oneself beyond anti-black projections. So you're encountering these things in the field. They're carving out spaces to reconceptualize their existence in the schools, in the classrooms, and in these after-school programs, right? So that's that's where those, those transformational moments are happening. That's where those conversations are happening to, to see beyond these, these anti-Black experiences that they're going through. It's, I always remember back, I went to a very racially and socioeconomically diverse high school. Um, and playing basketball, you know, I was probably, um, in my experience as a young person growing up, my first time to really be around, you know, Black peers extensively. And I always remember how many lost, like I think back as an educator about how many lost opportunities there were for educational moments in those experiences. But I saw these types of experiences that you're describing myself, but our white coaches never, you know, were able to talk about any of these things or support students. We, we, the biggest game we won our senior year to go to state, you know, we, we were celebrating and the opposing fans started hurling the N word at black players. And I, I remember hearing that, but no one ever, helped us make sense of it, helped us understand how to fight it, how to resist it, how to address it. I don't even know if anyone got in trouble from the other school for, for doing this. And so I think, you know, bringing up like the pedagogical decision-making, the ways that coaches serve as, as leaders in these spaces is really important because I think a lot of what we hear about coaches is just that they're bad teachers. And you're really troubling that notion by showing not only are they not many cases, bad teachers, but um, particularly these black coaches, right, in these cases, are doing some really profound work um, to resist, you know, anti-blackness in society. So uh, this is is really helpful to think through. So, So coming out of this study, what advice do you have for other educators, coaches, anyone who's listening who might be able to learn from this project you did? Yeah, yeah. So I'll give a couple things. I think first and foremost, the, the biggest thing for my work broadly is the de-essentialization of Black males, right? Particularly, you know, Black men and boys is to see through the ways in which that they get constructed as, you know, Anthony Brown calls it this pedagogical kind, right? Where you can only imagine the purpose, the utility, the pedagogical practices their sole purpose is to govern, right, as he says, the, the unruly Black boy, right? So you get constructed as this hardened disciplinarian, and that's your only purpose. And when you, when you read this paper and you see how these men are drawing on theology, the Black church, gospel songs, uh, racialized experiences and reconceptualizing that in these Black counterpublic spaces, they're reading poetry, they're reading, they're reading Franz Fanon and bringing that into the classroom. I mean, really getting at the complexity of the human experience of these Black men and boys and not doing it just through the lens of a deficit, of where one is only suffering and their spirit is being murdered. No, it, it's, a, it's a place of radical resilience as well, right? So that's on the one hand, on the other hand, is to broaden the understanding of, of how we think about where civic education is taking place, right? There's a lot of research that shows, uh, especially for students of color, especially for low-income students, that 
a, a deep civic education is not really happening in social studies classrooms, right? It's taking place in all these other spaces, right? Amanda Vickery gets at this in, in her work, looking at where Black women get into these topics beyond the classroom. So whether it's the athletic field, the Black church, the barbershop, an art gallery, this discourse is taking place in all these other places. And social studies teachers should lean into that, right? I mean, I think it's deeply problematic that we construct teacher coaches as these, these anti-intellectual, you know, who, intellectuals who kind of avoid the, the academic rigors of, of their work, right? So it's reframing that as well and, and looking at what does civic education look like in the athletic field? What does it look like when you take students to an art gallery? You have a teacher who's deeply impassioned in something else and they get to exist in these other spaces. So, you know, I hope those two things, those two things resonate and, and people take that away and, and apply it to their practice. Dale Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. We definitely appreciate the fact that you, uh, you were, were here to talk to us, to educate us. To coach us. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you or your work online? You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Daniel Thomas three. Uh, and you can always reach out to me via email at DJT at KU.edu. Okay. Thank you so much. And thanks again for joining us today. We certainly hope to continue the discussion on Twitter. Maybe we'll, some people will send you an email or maybe they'll just keep talking about your ideas with, with other people and sharing them around. Thank you so much. All right. You're welcome. Thanks. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education or you just want to chat and we get it, we're here at Visions of Ed. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and or anywhere you'd like us to be. And you know, the, the best high school athletes often get five stars, but you know who else <laughs> needs five stars? Our podcast. You can leave us a five-star view and we will read it on the air. We'd like to thank Zach Seitz of Zach Wiley Seitz. High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Peace. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.